Well, we begin a new chapter today in the Epistle to the Romans, so if you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10 today. And this is really a continuation of the argument or the response that Paul had started in chapter 9. Again, I would remind you, I'll do this from time to time, that when the scriptures were written, there were no chapter divisions. Uh, these things were put in at later points. Paul didn't write the letter to the Romans and write them by chapters, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and so forth, like he was writing a book. He wrote a letter the same way that you and I would write a letter. It was at a later point that these chapter divisions were put in in order to make it easier for us to study the scriptures and indeed to memorize the scriptures. The chapter divisions appeared basically around the Middle Ages. But other than that, there were none of those things. So Paul's argument flows from what we would call a chapter, from one chapter into the next rather seamlessly. And what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapters 9 and 10 is the argument that has been made that the Jews, because they have rejected God, have made God's promises null and void. Now, didn't God make promises to the Jews? Didn't God make promises to the nation of Israel? And yet the argument that people make to Paul was that, look, so many of the Jews have rejected the gospel. So it appears as though God's promises have been null and void. And, of course, Paul's response to that is by no means. That's not the case at all. All of Romans chapter 9 is to show that actually it was never the case where the entire nation was faithful. It was always a case where what you had was a faithful remnant. And Romans chapter 9 is an explanation of why that is the case. Paul goes on to expound this great doctrine of election or predestination. Well, he continues this theme of why the Jews have not embraced the good news here in chapter 10. And that's what we want to take a look at today. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. So you may want to follow along. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. You may have, as I said, another version. But basically, they'll be the same. Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is, for the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that I have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. Paul says there's a very good reason why the Jews have rejected the gospel. It's, he says it's because they have opted for another kind of righteousness. And as a result of that, they have completely missed the righteousness of God, which is the means of salvation. Now, what Paul is doing here in this section is returning to a theme that he has already introduced. You know, we get hung up on chapter 9 and this whole doctrine of election and predestination. And while it's certainly a difficult section of the epistle to the Romans, and while it is certainly an important section of the epistle to the Romans, it's not really Paul's main argument. We get hung up on it because it is difficult for us to sort through. But Paul's real argument in this epistle is how does a person come into a right relationship with God? How do you and I get right with God? That's the great question. And why is it that the Jews have not gotten right with God? That's what Paul is dealing with here in this epistle. That's the main theme, and we can't lose sight of that goal. And so he returns to it, as I said, although he never really left it here in Romans chapter 10. Now, this theme of righteousness is something that Paul has already introduced in this epistle way back at the very beginning, actually. I say in chapters 3 through 4, and that is true. That's where he introduces the idea of the righteousness that comes from God. But actually, he introduced the idea of righteousness and unrighteousness in the very first chapter. You may recall that he says the wrath of God is being poured out against all the what? Unrighteousness or godlessness of men. So he introduced the idea there at the beginning. But then in chapters 3 and 4, Paul talks about a different kind of righteousness. We referred to it when we looked at these chapters as an alien righteousness, a way of getting into a right relationship with God that has to be imported, if you will, because it is not something that we have in and of ourselves. And he talked in chapter 3, for example, about this righteousness that comes to us by means of faith. And he said it was precisely this kind of righteousness, this foreign or alien righteousness that Abraham had. Abraham was in a right relationship with God. Abraham was described as a friend of God, but it wasn't because of anything within Abraham itself. It's because Abraham did what? He had faith. He believed the promises of God, and we're told it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Paul has already introduced this idea of righteousness, this righteousness that comes by faith. It's a major theme in this epistle to the Romans. It's a major theme in other New Testament books as well, but particularly here in Romans. There are only about 16 chapters in the epistle to the Romans, and yet Paul raises this whole issue of righteousness, a right relationship with God, and how we come into that right relationship with God 33 times. So that's more than once a chapter, which really tells you that's the theme of this epistle. That's what this epistle is all about. It's not about predestination. It's not about election, despite the fact that we spent a considerable amount of time looking at that. This is really about getting right with God. And Paul is very clear here in Romans chapter 10 that there are two ways to do that. There are two ways of righteousness, or at least two views of righteousness. There is God's righteousness, 
which he says is the equivalent of God's character. It's the equivalent of God's nature. God is holy. God is righteous. God is the arbiter or the determiner of what is right and what is not. That's one form of righteousness. The other kind of righteousness is what he describes as man's righteousness. Now, what does man understand to be righteous? Well, man's idea of righteousness, that is living a right way or being in a right relationship, consists of good works and self-discipline. How do I get into a right relationship with God? How do I come to have peace with God? Well, I do it by my efforts, by my good works, and by refraining from certain things that might otherwise pull me away from God. And what Paul wants us to understand is that there is a difference between these two types of righteousness, between God's righteousness and man's idea of righteousness. And when he says there's a difference between the two, he means that there's a categorical difference between the two. He doesn't mean that there's a subtle difference between these two ideas of how you can get right with God. He's telling us that there is a fundamental, substantial difference between the two. The best way I've heard this described is like Monopoly money. Now, you've all played Monopoly. It's, it's a great game. You've got to have a lot of time to play Monopoly. Nobody likes to play Monopoly with me because I go for the throat. There's no lending money. If I'm going to wipe you out, I'm going to do everything in my power to wipe you out. Now, just imagine that somebody is playing Monopoly and, and they're very successful. They, you know, they get all of the prime real estate. They own all of the railroads. They own Marvin Gardens. They own Park Place and Boardwalk. And they even have, you know, Baltic and those areas up there. They have their own little slum area up there that they control. And by the end, everybody else is out of money. And they not only own all the property, they own the bank itself. Well, that's successful. That's capitalism at its best, we think. Well, just imagine if that person then, who has won everything, who owns everything on the board, decides to take their earnings and go down to South State Bank and walk into the bank and go up to the teller and say, I'd like to open an account. Sure, how much would you like to deposit? We're always looking for new depositors. Well, I'd like to deposit $1,563,000. Oh my, that's really impressive. And then you pull a wad of Monopoly money out of your pocket and lay it there on the desk. What do you think the teller is going to do? Yeah, she's going to push the button is exactly what she's going to do. And before you know it, there's going to be an armed guard there. It's because we understand that monopoly money is not the same thing as legal tender. It works in the board game, but it doesn't work in the real world. And Paul says that's what it's like when it comes to our righteousness versus God's righteousness. We seem to think that the accumulation of human good works or self-discipline these things automatically translate into the currency of God's salvation. And what Paul says is that that simply is 
not the case. This is why I pointed out in the sermon on Sunday that we will be known by our fruits. We will be known by our works. And when I said works, you'll recall that I pointed out I'm not talking about those works that are pleasing to men. Because the works that are pleasing to men are not necessarily pleasing to God. Our works, the works that are pleasing to men, are like monopoly money. <laughs> but it's not currency in God's kingdom. The kind of works that are pleasing to God, I pointed out, were those that are produced by God the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. People say, oh, well, I've, I've done all these good things. Well, that's great, but that's like taking the monopoly money to the bank. You're not going to get very far at all. Now, making or failing to understand the distinction between these two types of righteousness is not a small thing. And Paul makes that very clear. This is not a skin disease. This is a disease of the heart. The error here is a potentially fatal error. If you think that you can earn your way into God's good favor, if you think that you have anything in terms of the world's currency that you can give to God that he should accept you, then let me tell you something that is not a small error. Paul says that is a fatal error. Remember, what he's talking about here is salvation. What he's talking about is being accepted into God's kingdom or forever shut out of that kingdom. So these are not small, minor errors. This is a fundamental and grave error. It was the error that Paul says the Jews committed in his day, and if you think about it, it was the error that Paul at one point made in his own life. Paul felt precisely the same way. And this error is fatal for a number of reasons. First of all, those who make this error and think that their righteousness, man's righteousness, is sufficient, become satisfied with their own righteousness. We call that self-righteousness. And that's what happens to people who think that they're basically good, that they can earn their way into heaven. They basically think that they are fine just the way they are. As I said, Paul once thought this. Keep your finger there in Romans and flip over to Philippians for just a moment. Paul gives us a little bit of biographical information here in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What is Paul saying there? There are those who will beat their bodies into submission. There are those who will go through the rites of circumcision. And they think that by virtue of the fact that they've done all of these things outwardly, that is going to make a difference inwardly. And Paul says, watch out for that kind of attitude. Watch out for that kind of false teaching because it isn't true. He said, although I once thought that way myself. He goes on in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, 
In fact, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, that is to say, in the things that I've done outwardly, I have more. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. That is to say, I was a, a Jew of Jews. I was circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the law. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Why is that significant, the tribe of Benjamin? Well, it's because that following the death of King Solomon, you'll recall that the kingdom was divided between the nation of Israel in the north, which consisted of ten tribes, and two tribes in the south that became the nation of Judah. Now, the nation of Israel, those ten tribes in the north, eventually rebelled against the teaching of God, and the result was that they were severely punished. God brought in the Babylonians, and they were carried off into exile. Now, the two tribes in the south, the kingdom of Judah, remained loyal to God. Now, eventually, they would go off the rails as well. But initially, at least, they were faithful. They were the minority, but they were faithful. And those two tribes were Judah, for which the kingdom was named. And the other tribe was what? Benjamin. And so Paul says, I was not only a Jew of Jew, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. We were the faithful ones. We were the ones that paid the price for our faithfulness. He said, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is to say, my parents were both Hebrews, both Jews. I'm not from a mixed marriage. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was of the strictest sect of the law. You may recall that when... Martin Luther was struggling with his own life one day. His father actually wanted Luther to become a lawyer. And um, Luther planned to go that course, although he felt that God might be calling him in another direction. But he decided to do what his father told him to do. He was planning to become a lawyer. The story goes that one day Luther got caught in a terrible thunderstorm. And uh, lightning was flashing all around. And he was struck by lightning. And uh, he fell into a ditch um, that was filling up with water, and he was temporarily paralyzed. He couldn't move. If you've ever known somebody who's been hit by lightning, that's exactly what seems to happen to them. Some years ago, when I was at Virginia Seminary, we had a terrible storm uh, in Washington, D.C., and they were playing soccer up near St. Albans Hill, which is right just adjacent to um, the National Cathedral. There was a cathedral school there, a very elite school, and the students were out there playing, and this storm came up quickly, and lightning hit, and it hit that field. And several of the students were killed, parents were killed. I remember one person, I actually met this person at Virginia Seminary, and they told me it was terrifying because they were, they were completely out, and when they came to, what they could see was just people lying all over the field. They were just paralyzed. Some of them, their hearts had stopped and so forth. It was a terrifying experience. It was all over the news. Well, that's what happened to Luther. He was struck by lightning. He fell into a ditch that was filling up with water, and he thought for sure that he would drown. And he made a vow. You ever made a vow in a time of crisis? Oh, God. In this case, he made a promise to St. Anne. He said, St. Anne, save me, and I'll become a monk. Well, he survived. 
And unlike most of us who make those kinds of promises, whether we're praying to the porcelain god or whatever it may be, after a night of carousing, Luther remembered his promise, and he became a monk. And when he became a monk, he went all in. He decided to join the strictest sect of the Roman Catholic Church at that time, the strictest order, the Augustinians. He said, if any man could be saved by monkery, it was me. Well, that's a pretty apt description of the Apostle Paul when he says, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he said, I was, I was not lukewarm. You know, we're told that Jesus would rather have us hot or cold, but if we're lukewarm, he's going to spit us out of his mouth. We can understand this. We live in the South. You either like hot tea or you like iced tea. But nobody likes lukewarm tea. Well, Paul says, I was by no means lukewarm. I was hot. I was white hot in terms of zeal to the point of persecuting the church even unto death. He says, oh yes, I was all of those things. As far as righteousness under the law, if you looked at my life, from an outward perspective, you would have said that I was blameless. But then he goes on, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's a very nice translation. The real translation is, I count them as dung. I count them as dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but rather that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul acknowledges this was his own life. And if you try to earn your way into God's favor, if you think that you are good enough in and of yourself, you've not only made a categorical mistake, as I said, trying to use monopoly money in the real world, that's not going to work. But the other thing is this, you're going to be satisfied with your own righteousness. You're going to become a self-righteous person. And when you become a self-righteous person, what are you going to do? You're going to look down on others. How many of you like self-righteous individuals? Anybody out there like a self-righteous individual? I'm not saying, are you a self-righteous individual? Most of us are. I'm asking the question, do you like them? No, we don't like them at all. And yet that's what we are if we think we're good enough. We look down on others. I like the way James Montgomery Boyce described this. He said, it's like being a 100-watt bulb. Oh, you think, well, I'm, I'm so bright. I'm, I'm 100 watts compared to my neighbor who's only a 60-watt bulb or a 40-watt bulb. Some of them out there are only, you know, 10-watt bulbs. But how good am I? But the problem, he says, is that it's not a question of being a 100-watt bulb. A 100-watt bulb is great compared to a 60-watt bulb, but what is it compared to the sun? 
It's nothing. And that's what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with how you compare to another person, Paul says. It's how you compare to the one who is the sun. And what is your brightness in comparison to that? It is absolutely nothing. Here's a third problem with those who make this potentially fatal error. They resent Jesus and they resent the gospel. That had been Paul at one point in his life. That's what he's saying there in Philippians. When I looked at my life, I was good enough. Don't tell me I'm not good enough. Don't tell me I'm, I'm not acceptable to God. Look at all I've done. And so he found the message of the gospel, the message that he wasn't good enough, the message that what he needed was an alien righteousness to be what? To be offensive. That's why he persecuted the church. And many of us resent the gospel sometimes, don't we? I mean, nobody likes to be told that you're not good enough. Nobody likes to be told, as John Wayne once said, that you're high-smelling and low-down. Nobody likes that. And so we resent it. We resent the gospel. We resent the messenger. It's fine for us to sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. But while I can call myself a wretch, you had better not call me a wretch. This is one of the things I learned very early on in marriage. that I remember my wife, I said something about her mother at one point. Now, it was just a repeat of what she had already said, but she made it very clear that it was all right for her to say that about her mother, but it was not all right for me to say that about her mother. And that's the way it is for many of us, isn't it? And so we resent Jesus and we resent the gospel because Jesus comes in and says very clearly, we're not good enough. Here's the third problem with those who make this fatal mistake. They fail to understand the purpose and the function of the law. They think that the purpose of the Ten Commandments or the purpose of any law or any standard is for them to achieve righteousness, to get to the top of the heap. And actually, Paul says that is not what the law was intended to do. That's why the Jews have missed the mark. That's why they have not been saved. That is why they resent the gospel. It's because they think that the law is designed to keep them from sin when the real purpose of the law is to reveal the sin in their lives. So those are the Pharisees, absolutely. That was the problem for them. They thought that the law was designed to help them be righteous when in fact the purpose of the law was to reveal the fact that they weren't. You've heard me talk about this before. When Moses came down with the Ten Commandments from the mountain, the very first commandment said, you shall have no other God but me. Now, you know that Moses threw down those commandments and broke them. Why? Because when he gets to the bottom of the mountain, what does he discover? He'd only been gone for a short period of time, relatively speaking, and he gets to the bottom of the hill, and what does he find the people doing? Worshiping the golden calf. They'd taken off their jewelry, their earrings, their rings, and so forth, and they had melted it down, and they had made this calf. There they were. Before Moses even gave them the law, they had already violated the very first commandment. Now, you give them the law at that point, how is it going to help them not break the law? The only thing it does is reveal the fact that they already have. You've heard me say this before. If you're, if you're a parent, you understand how this works with your kids. 
An older sister hits her brother. And you say, don't do that. That's not right. To put it in King James language, thou shalt not hit thy brother. But it's not going to prevent her from doing it. She's already done it. The only thing it does is reveal the fact that she's guilty. And Paul says that's what the real function of the law is. You've heard me say before, the law functions as a mirror. A mirror is a wonderful device. A mirror can show you that your face is dirty, but the problem with the mirror is that it can't clean it. And that's what the law is designed to do. And if you think you can be saved by your own means, by your own efforts, by following the commandments or whatever else it is, you fail to understand what those standards are really there for. And Paul says that has been the case with the Jews down through the centuries. He said that had been the case in my own life. And that is why he says they will not submit. Look at verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You'll notice that Paul doesn't say they could not submit. He says they would not submit. And they would not submit precisely because they had exchanged the righteousness of God for a righteousness of their own, and they had made all of these errors. They were satisfied with their own righteousness, just as Paul had been at one point in his life. They looked down on all others, thinking themselves superior. They resented Jesus and the message of the gospel. Indeed, they crucified him. They failed to understand the purpose and function of the law, and as a result, their hearts were hardened, and they turned away. Now, what Paul does is he says, you and I are faced with a choice. It's the same choice that they were faced with. You can seek a righteousness, but Paul's very clear, if any of us is going to be saved, we have to be in a right relationship with God. It's as simple as that. You have to be in a right relationship with God. And Paul says you've got a choice. You can pursue that right relationship with God by means of your own efforts. Paul uses the expression the law here, but it means by your own efforts. Or you can seek that righteousness by faith. But it's up to you but it's up to you. Now, mind you, he says, if you're going to do it by your own efforts, if you, if you want to believe that you're good enough just as you are, if you are refusing to submit to the idea that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that you cannot save yourself, he says, then understand, that's fine. Seek a right relationship with God by means of the law. But here's the question. How good must you be? He says, you must be perfect. If you're going to seek righteousness that way, it's not a matter of being better than the next person over. It's not a matter of being a 100-watt bulb in a 60-watt world. It is a matter of being perfect. That's what Jesus said to the people. He said, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. See, that's the problem. We seem to think that I'm going to be acceptable to God because I'm better than most of the people around me. 
But Paul says that is a failure to understand. Again, so what? The person next to you only has $10 of Monopoly money. And you've got $500. It doesn't matter. Neither of them is sufficient for a deposit in a real bank. There's only one way to find true relationships with God, and that is by means of faith. The old hymn put it well, my faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. It's all or nothing when it comes to Jesus Christ. Here's my question to you before we go on. If you were to die today, if God were to call you home today and you were to stand before the great white throne of judgment, and you heard me quote from Hebrews this past Sunday if you were in church, the book of Hebrews said, is appointed man once to die and then there is judgment. So we're all going to get it. Now, judgment is not necessarily a bad thing. We tend to think, oh, the day of judgment. Listen, judgment is only bad if the judgment is against you. If you're accused and the judgment is for you, that's not condemnation, that's what? That's vindication. But we need to understand nobody, nobody in this room, nobody in this world is ever going to escape judgment. We say it every Sunday. He will come again to judge the what? The quick and the dead. The living and the dead. And you're going to be in one of those two categories when he comes. I promise you that. So we're all going to be judged. Now the question is this. Will the judgment be in your favor? Or will the judgment be against you? Will it be a day of vindication? Or will it be a day of condemnation? Well, it all depends on whether or not you have sought a righteousness of your own. When you stand before the great white throne of judgment and God says to you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What is your answer going to be? Are you going to say, well, now, Lord, I'm not perfect. And I know that. I mean, you got to give me credit for at least acknowledging that. But Lord, I'm, I'm, I tried my best. I, I, I gave it everything that I had. What do you think he's going to say to that? Well, I understand that, but the standard is perfection. And you've already acknowledged the fact that you're not perfect. What are you going to say on that day? To whom are you going to appeal? Paul said, I count all those things that I once valued as loss compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus. See, that's the difference. Now, what Paul goes on to do in the next few verses is he talks about the superiority of the righteousness that comes by faith. He said, the reason why the righteousness that comes by faith is superior to the righteousness that comes by works or by means of the law is that we don't have to try to 
climb our way into heaven. That's what he's talking about in verses 5 and following. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That's Paul's way of saying, you don't have to, by your good works, by your good efforts, climb your way up into heaven in order to find God. Nor, he says, do you need to descend into the abyss, into the darkest of places, into sorrow and pain and self-humiliation in order to find Christ and bring him up. Because the righteousness that by faith knows that God has already come down. We don't have to go up to find him. We don't have to go down to find him. He comes and he seeks us. That's the whole message of the incarnation, folks. That's what Christmas is all about. It's not about us finding God. It's about God finding us. That's why Jesus uses those images, those wonderful parables about the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. Those parables are all together in the same section in the gospel, and they're all about the same thing. They're all about lost things. And those lost things are lost and they don't find themselves. Lost sheep doesn't find its way home. The shepherd leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one, doesn't he? The coin that is lost doesn't find its own way back to the mistress. No, she has to go out and she has to sweep the house diligently to find it. And ultimately, the son doesn't come home on his own. Now, that's what we think, but he really doesn't come home on his own, does he? He only comes home because he has nowhere else to go. And when he comes home, he doesn't receive from his father what he deserves, which is to have the door slammed in his face. Instead, he received from his father exactly what he doesn't deserve. A ring on his finger, a mantle about his shoulders, and to be called son. superiority of righteousness that comes by faith is that there's no need for us to find God. God will come and find us. What, what, what must we do then? Is there anything that you and I contribute to this process of salvation? Well, Paul says, just faith. And remember, in light of what he's already said in Romans chapter 9, even faith itself is a gift. Faith is merely the conduit by which we receive God's righteousness. And that's what he is talking about. Verse 8, but what does it say? That is the righteousness that comes by faith. What does the righteousness that comes by faith say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul says something, I think, that we need to highlight here. He says... 
if you believe in your heart. Why does Paul say believe in your heart? Most of us believe in our minds. Why is it the heart that matters here? When we talk about faith, genuine Christian faith, there are always three elements to true faith. Sometimes when we think about faith, we we think about faith is what you have when you don't have evidence or you don't have proof or you don't have facts. That's what, what people have. That's a caricature of faith. That's not real faith. We all have faith. Every single one of us has faith. Sometimes it's faith that is justified. Sometimes it's faith that is not justified. But we exercise faith in every aspect of our lives. Every single one of you came in today and sat down in your chairs, and I didn't notice anybody trying out those chairs to make sure they wouldn't collapse. But have you ever seen somebody sit on a chair and the chair has collapsed? Sure. Could those chairs potentially collapse under your weight? Sure. But you had faith that they would not. And that faith was based upon what? Past experience based on evidence. That's the way it is with Christian faith. We're not expected to believe because we can't bear the thought of not believing. We're encouraged to believe because God has proven himself believable. So there are three aspects to genuine faith. The first aspect is just that. It is knowledge. It's normally described in terms of three Latin terms, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. A census is simply a knowledge of what you're believing in, the content of faith. Now, this is what we profess every Sunday when we stand and say the creed. That is the content of faith. What is it that we Christians believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. We believe in God, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. That's the content of the faith. Now, you can ask somebody who's not a Christian on the street, what does it mean to be a Christian? And they can tell you that's the content of the Christian faith. But while that is one aspect of faith, it's not the whole thing. To be a true Christian and to have true Christian faith, it's not enough to simply know what Christians believe. You also have to be in agreement with that. So it's possible for someone to say, well, this is what Christians believe. They believe the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed. It's another thing to say, and I'm in agreement with that. That's another aspect of Christian faith. But even that, even being in agreement with the doctrines of the Christian faith or the teachings of Christianity is not sufficient. It's not true faith. True faith, as I said, always has three elements. There is a content to it. There's an agreement with it, but then there is also a trust. See, somebody might know that Jesus Christ, at least Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. They might say, that's what Christians believe, but I don't believe that. They've got notitia, but they don't have a census. Somebody else might say, well, I, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. I know that's what the church teaches, and I believe that. But they have never done the third part, and that is to place their whole life, their whole destiny into the hands of Jesus. That's what the Lord is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, on that day there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, 
and I will say, I never knew you. All three elements are necessary. You need to understand the content of the Christian faith. You have to agree with the Christian faith, and you have to trust in the Christian faith. And it's that last part, the, the trusting, the fiducia, that Paul is talking about when he says here, if you believe in your heart, it's not enough to believe with your mind. You have to really trust Christ Jesus. You have to trust him personally. As you heard me say on Sunday, the Christian faith is not something that you inherit. It's not something that is passed on to you in the bloodstream. There has to be an actual transaction between you and Christ. It's not enough to say Jesus is the Savior. You have to be able to say he is my Savior. You have to believe in your heart, Paul says. But it's not just believing in your heart. It'd be great if that was all there was to it, but he says something else here, doesn't he? He says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if we confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, it's not enough simply to believe it in your heart. You have to confess it with your lips. I cannot tell you how many times people will say to me, I really don't talk about my Christian faith. I really don't talk about Jesus Christ. That is a private matter. I suspect, and I don't want to see a show of hands, but I suspect, because I was an Episcopalian, that many people have been raised to believe that you should not talk about religion. That's just not polite conversation. There are certain things that you avoid at the dinner table. You don't talk about politics and you don't talk about religion, although I suspect we often violate the politics one. And so your religion should, you know, sort of be something that you keep to yourself. You need to understand that that may be mismanners, but that is not the gospel according to Jesus Christ. The Lord's last words to his disciples prior to his ascension were, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Make disciples of all men. Baptize them in the, Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Christianity has a missionary mandate. We are not to hoard this as a private treasure. We are to share it with the world. Jesus himself says, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. This is a deeply personal matter, but folks, it is not a private matter. Robert Haldane, who is a great Scottish minister and great Scottish expositor, said that both of these are necessary for salvation. Faith is necessary in order to obtain the gift of righteousness. Confession is necessary to prove that the gift has been received. Let me repeat that. It is so important. Faith is necessary in order to obtain the gift of righteousness. Confession is necessary to prove that the gift has been received. We're not saved by our works, but our works are the evidence of our salvation. So we need to believe in our hearts 
But we need to be prepared to bear witness to Jesus Christ, to confess him with our lips. And Paul says, if we do that, we'll be saved. What else must I do? (laughs) Nothing. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. I think the most difficult of all Christian doctrines for people to grasp is not the doctrine of the Trinity. It's the doctrine of grace. Now, it's not the most difficult for us to understand. It's the most difficult for us to accept. Why? Because we always want to add something to it. We always want to add our goodness. What does Paul say? What do you have to do in order to be saved? What do you have to do in order to achieve this righteousness that comes by faith? This righteousness by which a person is saved, Jew or Gentile? He says you must believe in your heart. That is to say, you need to understand the content of the faith. You need to be in agreement with it. But you have to trust in Jesus Christ personally. And the evidence that you have really done that is the fact that you are prepared to bear witness to him wherever you may be. You know, it's really interesting. In the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which we no longer use, we're under a new prayer book, but in the old 79 prayer book in the Catechism, there was this question, who are the ministers of the church? Now, if you ask most people, who are the ministers of the church? What are they going to say? Oh, they're going to say, well, there's Jeff Miller and Brian McGreevy and Justin Hare, and Andrew O'Dell, and Bill Christian. Those are the ministers of the church. But that's not the answer given in the catechism. Who are the ministers of the church? Lay persons, bishops, priests, and deacons. And what is really interesting is that lay persons are mentioned first. Before the bishops, before the priests, before the deacons. How many of you, let me see a show of hands, have been baptized? You're all ordained. That's the way it works. You are all ordained in the sight of God to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And isn't that what a minister does? Isn't that what a minister is called to do, to bear witness to Jesus Christ and his saving grace? If you're a baptized Christian, you're ordained to that task. It is not something that is confined only to those who wear the vestments and the collar. Now the question becomes, well, how can we do that? How can we confess Christ publicly? Let me suggest to you some just very practical things, okay? Because you may be sitting out there thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to go down there to the street corner by the market right next to those Jehovah's Witnesses that are everywhere in the city today, and I've got to bear witness, Well, maybe God is calling you to do that, and I'm not saying that he's not. But I'm not saying that he is either. What are some ways that you can bear witness, that you can publicly confess Christ? Well, one is by attending public worship. Now, I know that for some people, that's just always been their practice because they were raised to do that, and they just got into the habit of doing it. But one of the things that we have noticed, especially in the wake of COVID, is that fewer and fewer people are going to church these days. They think that they can sit at home and watch it. Now, we're not going to end the live streaming, so don't fear about that. And those of you who are out there in the blogosphere right now listening to my words, I'm not going to end live streaming. But I want you to understand there is no substitute 
Worship is not a spectator sport. You know, we're a liturgical church. You know what the word liturgy means? What does it mean? The works of the people. Miss M gets a straight A today. That's exactly right. The word liturgy means the work of the people. That is to say, worship is the work of the people. That's why we have the give and take. The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Let us pray. Amen. It is because it is the work of the people. We are all to be engaged in that. Sitting at home and watching the sermon while you are drinking a Bloody Mary may be comfortable, but it is not worship. Now, there may be a case where somebody is, let's be honest, sick, and they can't do that, and that's the best they can do, and they can't engage in worship that way. But if you are capable of being in church and you're not in church, you're not engaged in worship. That's just the way it is. So public worship is a way of profession. Getting up in the morning, getting the kids dressed, getting there. Let me tell you something, that's hard to do. My wife has had to do it for 30 years by herself. You know, I'll tell you a story. Maybe I've told you this before. When we lived in Beaufort. You know, Beaufort, when I was at St. Helena's, and we were there for 17 years, and Kristen was a young mother, I was always up front. We had four kids, um, you know, and some of those kids were young when we were They were all young when we were there, but we had two that were born while we were there. And, of course, that was a military town. We had Navy personnel there. There were two Marine bases, the Air Station, Paris Island, and so forth. So we had a lot of military families in the church. And I remember somebody coming up to me and saying, there's a lady in the church that was asking about your wife. And I said, oh, really? What did she want to know? And she said, she wanted to know where that young woman's husband was. She said her husband must have been on a very long deployment. Because she kept showing up, but every now and then she'd show up with a new kid, but her husband was never with her. At which point, my friend said, that's her husband up there in the pulpit. The very fact that she got those kids up and got them to church, that's a testimony, folks. I got to be honest, when young families say to me, oh, we just can't manage to get it, I say, baloney. You want to know how to do it? Go talk to my wife. She'll tell you exactly how to do it. Now, I admit sometimes their shirts weren't buttoned correctly and their hairs weren't combed, but they were there. Public worship is one way that you can profess your faith in Jesus Christ. Participation in the sacraments. That is to be there to, to participate, to get your children baptized, to participate in sacraments. I, I think for many people, and, and I'm not jumping on anybody, but one of the things that I bemoan is the fact that more and more people are opting for weddings in other places than the church. That's a sad thing. We're looking for destination weddings, and we forget what a marriage is really all about. You are seeking God's blessing. And if you're seeking God's blessing, it's not that God can't bless you out in a field or on a mountaintop or anything like that. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is it sort of misses what the purpose of the marriage is really all about. You can bear witness to Christ by your association with God's people. By associating with the church and the people of the church, by participating in Bible studies like this, by participating in prayer groups. 
You can bear witness to Christ in the way that you conduct your business in a way that is better than the people around you by holding yourself and your employees to a higher standard, for example. You can bear witness to Christ by reaching out to others, particularly those who are in need, those who are hurting, those who are mourning. That's a way to bear witness to Christ. You can bear witness to Christ in temptation. And temptations are all around us. But when everybody else is falling prey, the fact that you're resisting, not because of anything that is great within you, but because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, that is a powerful way to bear witness to Jesus Christ. You can bear witness to Christ in severe trials. That's what Peter talks about in his first epistle, about your faith being tested. And when Paul, when Peter says tested, he doesn't mean you're being tested to see whether you'll fall or stand fail or succeed. It's the kind of testing that steel goes through when it goes through a fire so that it's tempered and strong. You can bear witness to Christ in the hour of your death. In 1899, two men died. Two famous men here in America. Two men had been front page news for decades. One was a man by the name of Colonel Robert Ingersoll. He was one of the great skeptics of the 19th century. He spent his entire life going around from city to city, engaging in debates, very much like Richard Dawkins did a few years ago, going around debunking the Christian faith. He died in 1899. Just about the same time that he died, another man died. That man's name was Dwight L. Moody. I'm sure you've heard of Dwight L. Moody, the Moody Bible Institute, Moody Church in Chicago, probably the greatest evangelist that America ever produced, an extraordinary man. Didn't have much formal education, as a matter of fact, but he was an amazing preacher, an expositor of God's Word. Both of these men died, but the manner of their death and the aftermath could not have been different. When Robert Ingersoll died... His family was so overcome with grief because they had no hope. He had denounced and denied everything. His wife was so stricken with grief that she refused to allow the body to be removed from the house. For three weeks, it sat in the house, decomposing and decaying until eventually the authorities had to come and remove the body. It was the last that she had of him, you see. Now contrast that with the death of Dwight L. Moody. Moody was lying on his deathbed in great weakness. His son was sitting next to him. His son's name was Will. And at one point, he'd been in a fever. He'd been having a difficult time and he'd been struggling with his breath and so forth. And all of a sudden, he sat bolt upright in the bed. And his son calmed him, and he said, Father, Father, it's all right. And in a moment of complete clarity and lucidity, Dwight L. Moody said, no, son. No, son, it's all right. I'm not afraid. He said, I've been within the gates, one on the throne. Let me go, Will. Don't hold me back from the glory anymore. And he slipped back into his pillow, and he went home to be with his Lord. 
There's the difference, folks. There's the difference. You trying to achieve a righteousness of your own? Are you trusting in that righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ who's come down that by believing in him, you and I might go up? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the righteousness that comes by faith. We realize we have nothing. There is nothing good in us. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, down from the Father of lights. So allow us to see ourselves as completely bankrupt individuals, that our monopoly money is nothing worth, but that Jesus Christ died for us. And let us believe, agree, and trust in his finished work that when our days come to an end, we may rejoice that we will not be held back from the glory anymore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.